Hi, this is Michelle Sherman, president of Mishorex Pharmacist Consulting Services and the host of the Conscious Pharmacist podcast. As far back as I can remember growing up in South Africa, one thing was always obvious to me. It was something that emanated from my soul, if you will. It was the knowing that all human beings are created equal, that we are all the same. The Conscious Pharmacist podcast is proud to be a podcast on the Pharmacy Podcast Network and is a show for pharmacist healthcare providers who have answered the call to practicing on purpose. Being conscious brings to light disparities and injustices in our society and healthcare system. Our show strives to bring to the forefront these issues we face today in a changing healthcare landscape and how we can change lives one patient at a time. As pharmacists, we do what matters, how we practice what matters, and how we take care of patients matters. Be conscious, speak out, every voice matters. Be the change you wish to see in the world. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You're listening to the CRX Podcast. The CRX Podcast provides an added benefit for healthcare professionals and readers of the CRX Magazine, a leader in reliable information and news about medical cannabis. The CRX Podcast will provide the latest discussions about cannabinoid products as part of a patient's treatment plans and deliver the latest education about medical cannabis for pharmacists, physicians, and innovative healthcare providers. Hello, everybody. This is Joseph Friedman, pharmacist with CRX Magazine. Uh, What we do is we do podcasts based on past and future articles in the magazine, And today we're talking about a very important topic. I've got a couple of great experts on board. Uh, And again, I'm Joseph Friedman, pharmacist, um, you know, with CRX Magazine. And uh, so I've got Jessica Cranny and Simi Burns, uh, two dynamic people who are very knowledgeable about this topic. And uh, Jessica, why don't you tell the audience about yourself? Thanks, Joseph. And I really appreciate you having me. I um, work in the cannabis industry Insofar as the consulting and recruiting side, I spent 16 years um, in very traditional telecom uh, retail leadership and transitioned that into the cannabis industry, working for a large uh, vertically integrated operator here in Colorado. And about a year into that, found myself getting recruited by other companies to to take that that traditional enterprise experience and and bring it to cannabis. And so uh, for about the last two years, I have spent the vast majority of my time consulting with and recruiting for uh, cannabis and what I call can adjacent companies. Excellent. And then Simi Burns, who, who is a fellow pharmacist, PharmD, I believe. So Simi. Yes. Hi. Yes, I am Dr. Simi Byrne, PharmD. Um, I am a pharmacist. I've been a pharmacist for about 11 years. And um, I primarily worked in long-term care, um, nursing home, assisted living, um, geriatrics. And so lots of pain management, lots of chronic illnesses. And I kind of... Um, um, got to where I felt like, is this all there is? Is this all that we have to offer for, for health, for people? It seemed, um, to be very much focused, the whole industry and and the medical system in general focused on, um, profiting off of prolonging people's suffering. And so I got into holistic health and wellness, um, and did some health and wellness coaching. I am a yoga and meditation teacher, opened my own yoga studio here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, um, 
the more that I got into holistic health and wellness and plant-based um, living, plant-based nutrition and plant-based medicine, the more that I learned about cannabis that I had not learned in pharmacy school other than a little bit of prohibition propaganda. So that started my um, my interest there. And um, I do consulting as a medical cannabis pharmacist for individual patients, especially with chronic um, health conditions or complex medical conditions uh, where they've got lots of medications. I get a lot of questions from parents looking for support for their children and um, work on a, on numerous projects and um, partnerships that I'm really excited about from research to education in the medical cannabis industry. Fantastic. Well, well let's just jump right into this. And then again, this, this topic is about the Last Prisoner Project. And if people uh, don't really know or, or aren't familiar with that project. It's, it's a small um, uh, nonprofit uh, that is spends a lot of, you know, spends a great deal of time fundraising, but at the same time, what they do is, you know, there's a, a huge population of people out there that have been incarcerated for nonviolent crimes. And, you know, one of those nonviolent crimes is, you know, being put away for possession of cannabis. And there's about 40,000 people that are you know, incarcerated today for you know, uh, nonviolent crimes. And, and I just signed um, a, a clemency that is going to President Biden. Uh, you know, in his first day of office, I think he released about 12 people, but you know, there's, it's, it's not enough. And what we need to do is get a lot of these prisoners released. We have to have clemency, but we also have, need to have cannabis um, descheduled. I mean, this should not be on schedule one. And for a lot of those people that don't know what schedule one is, it's just the, uh, the illegal schedule for all drugs that have no medicinal value are highly dangerous and just, you know, can't be prescribed by doctors. So with all that said, uh, let's go get right into this. And, and so Simi, you know, how did the war on drugs disproportionately affect racial minorities? You know, you know, so in other words, how did the war on drugs specifically affect, you know, black Mar Americans? Right. Um, and I think that that is such an important question to lead with because, you know, the war, the war on drugs is, um, is a tool. It is a project of white supremacy. It is a project of anti-blackness. It is a, it is a mechanism by which that happens. And it starts from, and it impacts every area of society, everything from education and the school to prison pipeline. Before I was a pharmacist, I was a high school teacher. And you see that, you know, starting very um, early in life for black and brown children, where they are prepped and prepared and over-policed um, and all of these things going on from everything from mental health to um, poverty to um, all of the all of the problems that um, already disproportionately affect black and brown people um, systematically in this country are going to tie right into that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really, um, a, the more I learned about it and the more I learn about the racism baked into not only our, our prison industrial complex and the war on drugs, but also our healthcare system, our medical paradigm, um, fundamentally, the, the more, confused I am as to why this isn't a bigger topic of conversation uh, in healthcare. Um, I've done a lot of work in, in Medicare for all and healthcare justice. Um, you know, that's something we're talking about a lot. This is a public health issue. The war on drugs is a public health 
issue. It's causing public health crises of various kinds, which are continuing to feed into it. So I, um, you know, I, I'm really glad to see more conversation and there needs to be more work and more attention to the Last Prisoners Project and other advocacy and um, organizing within industry, within the healthcare profession, within the cannabis industry and the public in general. Great. Uh, Jessica, do you, do you have anything to add to that? I totally echo everything that Sumi has just said. And, and when you look at the numbers, you really can't discredit the data. Um, across our country, Black Americans are almost four times as likely to be incarcerated. Um, and in some states, that's up you know, over eight times as likely. Um, but yet the consumption across both races is very parallel. And so, you know, like I said, I echo everything that Simi said. And when you look at the data, to her point, you need to continue this conversation. And, and you said it as well. You know, 12 people released on his first day of office is certainly a step in the right direction, but it's not enough. And um, we need to continue to do more and you know, continue to amplify not only the medicinal properties and, like you said, descheduling, but amplifying what happens racially. Great. And, and you know what? The last prisoner project, you know, let's, let's, let's get a little bit into that. Um, you know, again, I, I mentioned that it was a nonprofit small group. And, you know, I, I guess the question that I have is, you know, why does it take, uh, you know, the Last Prisoner Project, you know, to be the only one out there, uh, you know, trying to get support for these incarcerated prisoners? Uh, you know, why, why is this project necessary and what took us so long? So, so Jessica, do you, do you have any comments about that? Well, I think the the necessity of it is one that we just kind of touched on. Um, but to your point, I think that there are organizations starting to to get in, involved and in line. And you know, when I chatted with Mary last week, um, you know, she started the team as you mentioned with her and, and two people, and they've now grown that team to over thirteen. But they still have you know great opportunities and options for people to get involved to continue to amplify. Yes, there's sponsorship packages, but there's also things that you can do. Uh, to little at little or no cost to just raise that awareness and um you know there there are a few organizations the aclu really tackles it from uh, a minority perspective or a race perspective um versus a lot of states normal organizations nlrml um, is trying to tackle it from the deschedulization and, and legalization side of things but you know the last prisoner project has definitely been the people that have been beating the drum the loudest Right. And Simi, why is, you know, I mean, it's great that we're seeing some movement in this area, but there's, you know, going to be record expungement. You know, why is that just as important as getting these prisoners released? Yeah, I mean, because the the, incar the impact of incarceration on people um, goes, it ripples through the whole community, through their family, through the rest of their life, from, from being able to vote, from being able to get a job, from being able to reenter society, from the, the cycle um, that's there. And there's it's big business. Uh, people are profiting off of this entire system that, um, the, you know, from prison labor and for-profit prisons, those are things, we have the highest incarceration rate in the world this country has the highest incarceration rate in the world. And in fact, in Oklahoma, where I am from, um, we have the highest incarceration rate in the country. So that makes us the, the highest in the world and highest for women um, in our state prisons as well. And um, 
more than half, depending on what year, um, more than half of, of those are for drug offenses. Two thirds of those women in prison are mothers. Um, Oklahoma incarcerates disproportionately, like all states, black and women of color. And um, so that has to be part of it. We can't say that we care about health and wellness in the medical cannabis industry without uh, caring about the way that the prison um, system and the war on drugs impacts health and wellness. Uh, we can't say we care about that as healthcare professionals. We can't, we should, we should stand up for that as healthcare professionals. We should know about it and we should realize the impact of that. And, you know, it's just, it's appalling to me here in Oklahoma, I can walk into a dispensary that looks like an Apple store, um, yet people are languishing in prison for doing exactly the same thing just a few years ago or outside of the, the legal market. And it's just, it's hypocrisy, it's, it's unacceptable and more people need to know about it. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that kind of, um, you know, comes to mind is, you know, and, and I think we, we briefly talked about this is, you know, there's opposition out there. And, you know, this opposition, I mean, what we don't know, and there's some big opposition organizations, you know, where is their funding coming from? Is it coming from these profitable prisons? You know, are they getting donations? You know, to keep cannabis at a Schedule One and keep these 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 these, these people in prison. I, I mean, you know, do you have any 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 insight on that, uh, Jessica? Yeah, a couple of things, and I wanted to touch back on something that Simi had said regarding, you know, just when I was chatting with Mary last week. One of the things that she said that I, I quoted, I underlined, I circle circle star starred. She said, this is a real moral imperative for me personally. She said, I was a, I'm a consumer myself. I have been before it was legal. And I was lucky enough to not get caught. But the, and so many people weren't you know, afforded or whatever, however you want to, I don't know if luxury is the right word. Um, but to your point about you know, work, Simi, and, and get, getting back into the workplace, I actually worked with um, a company here in Colorado that I was very impressed by this. It was certainly something that you know, they took to heart as a social imperative for them. Um, they go and they post job openings at local correctional facilities that basically say, if you've been incarcerated for cannabis, we have a job for you. And do, kind of doing their part. And so I think there's just, there's things like that that continue to happen um, for folks, you know, like myself and like Mary who say, we've been participating and didn't have this happen to us. To your point about funding, I actually looked up a, a statistic. States waste over $3 billion per year enforcing marijuana offenses. And to your point, it's not usually drug kingpins. It's, you know, all consumers with, you know, a couple of pre-rolls or an eighth or two in their pocket. And there, there's the amount of money that we're talking about spending. And when you think about how differently that money could be spent, you know, rehabilitating people, providing resources. You know, I love Simi's points about mental health care, general physical health care. Like, what could we be doing differently with those funds for these very nonviolent criminal offenses, quote unquote criminal? Right. And, and, you, and you keep on mentioning Mary. Did, did you actually, you know, so Mary's with the Last Prisoner Project. What is her position there? She's one of the founders. Oh, great. Okay. Well, then she's... <laughs> Yeah, you know, she's got some insight, I'm sure. Um, so, so, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, these, 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 you know, people that are getting out of prison, and I think you touched on this, Jessica, but Simi, you know, what, what, what kinds of things are needed, you know, you know, by the federal government or in individual states to really help these, these 
people who are getting out of prison, you know, re-enter, you know, society. Yeah, I mean, I think that that has to be a comprehensive approach because we can't we can't treat the event of going to prison and coming out as like an isolated thing that just affects one person. It affects the whole community. It affects everybody around um, around them. It affects all of us, uh, children in particular. You know, with with the percentage of women in prison and the percentage of women that are mothers in prison and parents mothers, fathers, just parents who are unable to be part of um, their family's lives during that time and unable to be, you know, it's it's setting up generational supply uh, to the foster care system, to the prison system. And this is big business. This is very profitable. That's why, um, you know, in in healthcare um, justice advocacy work, I, I learned that um, and this was really baffling to me that because the prison system has for-profit entities, some of them are not even um, American companies. So there's companies that are, you know, from other countries that have Americans um, and people in America in prison for profit. And that's their business model is collecting more money than they spend on prisoners, and so because healthcare is part of that, um, they do better and benefit when when prisoners are healthier, which means younger. And because of shifting demographics, that's more likely to be black and brown people um, because of the changing demographics of of the American population. So these systems. So my point to that, to, to just a roundabout way, I mean, these are huge problems to tackle and it's requ- going to require everybody in particular. I would love to, to see more conversation about that in the healthcare if, you know, for healthcare professionals and really looking at like, for example, the reasons that people use cannabis um, and how they are related to systemic racism from PTSD, from the impact of stress and trauma on the body, from chronic inflammation, um, you know, for mental health, for all of these things, you know, why are we imprisoning people for um, trying to feel better using plant medicine that people have used for centuries in all over the world um, safely and effectively? It makes no sense to me clinically, medically, as a pharmacist, as a person, and it shouldn't to anybody else. Great. And, and Jessica, are, are there any other programs out there or groups that are working towards similar aims, you know, similar to the Last Prisoner Project? Um, I think in a, in a roundabout fashion, as I mentioned, kind of from the minority perspective and the, and the race side, the ACLU, um, you know, has kind of an arm of theirs that is dedicated to correcting some of the things that have happened as a function of the war on drugs. Um, and then most states, um, their normal organizations are working on kind of the the legalization and the deschedulizing. Um, but as far as kind of really tackling incarceration related to cannabis um, and how that's impacting, you know, races in a variety of fashions, I really think they're, like I said, kind of beating the drum the loudest on that one. Right. You know, one of the other factors contributed, what are the other factors that contribute to inequality and incarceration rates? I, I think you know, that's sort of a common sense, you know, question with probably a common sense response, but Simi, you know, what, what is your, what do you think? You know, I, I really like, and the perspective of a physician, Dr. Rupa Maria about, um, 
about the ways that these systems work and how they impact um, how they impact our health. Because you know, a lot of times we like to think about racism as something that happens when somebody is mean to somebody else or has like mean thoughts about somebody else and something that happens between individuals or, or things like that. And it's, it's really not like that. This is about systems and these systems have a, an impact on living human beings, on our bodies, on the body level, on, um, you know, on our health. And it's really, it's really violent. And so, you know, that probably kind of digressed from your original question there. But I mean, I I think that one way that, that I really like that Dr. Maria um, frames it is that we have to start looking at things more holistically, the way that indigenous um, people have done for centuries and, and quote unquote, modern science is kind of just now catching up that we're not, we're not separate systems. We're not an immune system. And, um, you know, an education record and a parent, we're a parent and, you know, a community member, we're all of those same things at the same time as full, complete human beings. And so when these things happen um, with these systems, that leads to chronic stress, leads to inflammation and what she would describe as um, diseases of colonization. So in indigenous cultures, suicide is very rare. Cancer is very rare. Heart disease, you know, a lot of these things are results of um, these systems and, and not living sustainably and not living the way that that we always have for thousands of years up until the, the last few hundred years. So this isn't natural for us. Um, and there, there, we have to be able to imagine a path forward and what that can look like. And I think that really looks like digging into our roots. Plants, plant medicine is one of them. Um, I, I'm, you know, very passionate about that and, and returning to, um, to the planet when it comes to food, when it comes to medicine and ourselves. You know, and, and just, you know, to your point, um, uh, just a couple of years ago, the uh, FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting Program, you know, uh, did some statistical analysis and then they compiled it. And cannabis offenses in 2019, there were more cannabis offenses, you know, than all the other violent crimes combined, including rape, homicide, aggravated assault and armed robbery. And, you know, and 92% of these arrests were for simple possession. So, so, so what other kind of policy changes, you know, local, state or federal, uh, Jessica, do you believe would help to work toward a solution? Uh, you know, what, what do we need to happen? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that we're doing right now is continuing the conversation and just providing a platform to continue and drive ongoing awareness. And one of the things that um, Mary had touched on, you know, there's three different programs or um, opportunities to get involved um, and and be a part of the conversation. And there's a few different really creative things that I think that, you know, they've continued to do to help amplify. And I can get into that as much as you'd like. But, you know, I think it is ongoing awareness. And and there are a lot of people who don't realize that this is an issue. And, you know, Simi makes a great point. When I think about my sweet mom, when she walks into, you know, a dispensary, she's not thinking that people are incarcerated for this anymore. It looks like an Apple store. They've all got polos on. It's a legit business. And yet there's not a lot of awareness for people that have been negatively impacted, um, whether you're a longtime consumer or a newer consumer. And I, I use my mom always as the example because she's admittedly naive and I've educated her along the way. But um, I think there's just a lot of lack of education out there. Um, and so ways that we can continue to amplify that. 
You know, you know, that's a great answer. And, you know, to that point, you know, we've got this growing cannabis industry. Uh, there's, there's lobbyists out there. There's, you know, normal that you mentioned, um, and, you know, and, 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 you know, what, what can we do as an industry? I mean, what kind of responsibility or role can, you know, should we play from this standpoint? Uh, so, Simi, you want to start that? And Jessica, certainly chime in. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we should be uh, a leading voice, a loud leading voice to, um, to that because, you know, it's immoral. <laughs> uh, it, feels, it feels very wrong. So from everything from employment, I loved what you were talking about, Jessica, about um, making sure that people who have been affected most by the war on drugs um, have the most opportunity or more opportunity. And unfortunately, it seems to be going in the opposite you know, direction. And I think people need to, to realize as well that just because there is decriminalization or, you know, medical marijuana programs in certain states or because um, of those things, people are still getting arrested and imprisoned and incarcerated for cannabis, um, even in states where it's legal, because if you don't have, um, you know, if you don't have the right license, the right paperwork, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make it go away. And we're still adding people to that system um, right now. So I think that's something that people can be aware of. And, and knowing, um, knowing more about it, I wanted to highlight and one of the, like, there's a lot of stories on the last Prisoner Project's website. And one of the stories on there that, you know, because a lot of times people are thinking like drug dealers, oh, that's like bad people, organized crime. You know, it's really not like that. Um, this was Fate Winslow, September 2008, a 41-year-old houseless father in Shreveport, Louisiana, undercover cop, um, asked if he could, um, could buy him $20 worth of marijuana. And he offered him $5.00 for the service. So for $5, that's what he was going to make. And he was, you know, homeless and was like, I couldn't at that point turn anything down. I was trying to turn my life around. Um, but because he had had three strikes and Louisiana has a four strikes, um, you know, really harsh law, he ended up being incarcerated and um, the white drug dealer was never arrested. Fate is a black man. Kate Winslow. Yes. And um, so Last Prisoner's Project got him released. That's that's the kind of people that um, they are working to to help and to connect with, even writing letters to and letting people know that, like, we care. We're here on the outside. We know you're in there. We're working toward it. Um, and they ended up getting his release. But unfortunately, he passed away five months later. Um, so he was in a maximum security prison for a small amount of plant um, plant, really, you know, we're putting people in cages over plants that people have used medicinally for thousands of years. Um, I mean, it, it is what it is. And I think that people have a hard time wrapping their mind around that because the more they learn about it, the more hard it is to believe. And I think that feeds a lot of the, you know, just conspiracy theories or, or just, um, just a lot of, uh, confusion, and I, so I think it's up to the cannabis industry and the medical industry, the healthcare industry. I would really like to see more conversation among physicians, pharmacists, um, you know, people who are, are supposedly caring about health and well-being, because this is, I would say, racism is the biggest public health crisis there is. Interesting point. And, and Jessica, you've got a lot of ties to the cannabis industry. What do you have to say? 
I mean, I, I like I said earlier, I, I echo a lot of what Simi said, and, and I like the way that she talks about the ripple effect and, and, and the need to really take a look at it holistically. Um, and I, I totally agree with that. I think that if you if you look at it with just one lens or very myopically, it's not going to paint the picture that is the reality. And I, I think Simi touched on that very well. When you hear the word drug dealer or the phrase, there's a certain image that comes to mind. And to your point, it is very much you know, house moms and, you know, just regular Americans having, like you said, enjoying a, in many places what is now recreationally legalized plant that's been around for thousands of years. Um, and so, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I and I, hearing that story, like really, those are the things that like, I've done a ton of research. I've chatted with them. I didn't come across that story. And like, I have chills. Like those are things that people need to be aware of you know, and especially when you make the comment that the black gentleman was arrested and the white gentleman wasn't like, that's a glaring issue. And if people can't see that, like it's time to remove the blinders. Mm -hmm. And you know, that the, on to add to that point, Jessica, I totally agree. And you know, the, the war on drugs makes it easier for police to stop people and to, to harass people and terrorize. I would, I would call that police terrorism. Um, it's not protecting and serving. It's particularly targeting certain communities and certain individuals based on systems. And so, you know, that that has to be looked at very deeply is is smelling weed. Is that um, cause for for searching somebody or for creating a dangerous encounter that may well cost somebody's life? Um you know, that's, that's, we really need to look at what kind of society, why do we think that we need so many police everywhere all the time around our children, around us? Why is that normalized? Um, when, you know, all we, we get taught this idea that, oh, like in America, it's very violent, but as we were saying how, you know, cannabis or for simple possession, not even like huge drug dealing, simple possession arrests, more people arrested for cannabis than the violent crimes like rape, homicide. So, you know, what are the police? Why do we need so many? Why do we need robocop police when healthcare professionals are wearing trash bags in a pandemic? That's great. And, and you know what? We've got, you know, a, a number of listeners out there that are healthcare professionals and patients alike. So, so guys um, or girls, uh, what, 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 in what way can our, our listeners help? You know, so listeners, listen to this. Sure, I'll, I'll go ahead and start. Um, there were three things that Mary had shared with me as far as ways that people can get involved and give back. Um, one is just general people and citizen donations. She shared with me that over 30% of their funding comes from individual contributors like you, me, and the listeners of this podcast. And so if there was a desire to get involved, um, we absolutely can help from a charitable donation perspective in that front. They also do two really cool things that they provide to companies to um, demonstrate a partnership or their the company's commitment and partnership with Last Prisoner Project. One of them is the Partners for Freedom Project that offers uh, sponsorship packages. The, the most common one is $12,000 a year or $1,000 a month. And um, as a sponsor, you are highlighted on their website, you get a few different marketing materials. There's things that you can, you know, put out there on your social media as well that say, hey, we're we're locking arms and we're we're running with with this team. Um, the other thing that I think that they do is really cool that's at no cost to the company, but really helps with 
amplifying awareness as we were touching on earlier, they do what's called roll it up for justice. And it's entirely free to a cannabis retailer. Um, it allows customers to donate from their transaction. And so think about if you go to Red Robin and they said, do you want to round up, you know, for the American Cancer Society or what have you, this is an opportunity to round up for the last prisoner project. And so even if a company doesn't want to necessarily write a check or that kind of contribution, there's, you know, if, if you were a consumer in that dispensary and didn't even know that this was an issue, but you know what happens to be that you've got a cousin or a brother or a sister or an aunt that is incarcerated, you're going to roll that up, that, that difference up. So um, they're doing a few different things that we can do to help continue to amplify. And the other thing she asked us was follow us on social media and repost our things. Um, you know, if I can go find that story or see me, if you can send that to me, I would love to, you know, continue to help amplify that. So she talked a lot about awareness. They certainly appreciate and enjoy charitable donations to, to help their cause continue. Um, but they're looking for advocates like the three of us, you know, here on this podcast and, and any of the folks that are listening out there. Fantastic. Well, you know what, we're, we're sort of uh, getting to the end of our time here, but, but I wanted to, you know, see if you had any, you know, parting words, you know, how people can get a hold of you. So Simi, why don't you go first? Sure. Yeah. So I'm Dr. Simi Byrne. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and my website is um, cannapharmacistok.com, cannapharmacistok.com. And um, I would love to um, connect with others in the industry, especially healthcare professionals. I think that a big thing is the stigma and educating ourselves so that we can help um, so that we can help break the stigma around medical cannabis, around all of these issues, and really seeing racism and, and all of these interlocking systems as not just something that one nonprofit does or a law can be passed to fix, um, that it really has to be about engaging where you are in your own community. Do something, get involved with something, whether it's you know, the last prisoner project, whether it's um, a job training program, whether it's just educating yourself about white fragility and reading white fragility and then doing something about it, whether it's writing letters, it's going to take everybody a lot of work. So um, I'm really glad to be here and have this wonderful conversation with you, Jessica and Joseph, and really appreciate it. Thank you. And, and Jessica. Very similar comments. Um, my, I'm also on LinkedIn. We're on Instagram, Facebook. Our website is grnuptownuptown.com. And would love to connect with, you know, as Simi said, cannabis professionals, medical professionals, um, frankly, folks that just kind of give a damn about what it is that we're trying to do here. And I think Simi's point was spot on. Um, get involved, do something. It doesn't have to be a lot. I, um, you know, one of their one of the last prisoner project uh, websites or that you can kind of direct to is an opportunity to sign petitions and let your voice be heard, you know, at the government levels. Um, and they, they provide a platform for that and you can pick different petitions to sign. And that doesn't require anything more than a little bit of time um, to say that, Hey, we're, we're with you on this one and we support you. And so I think Simi said it best, just continue to, to be an advocate, continue to amplify it, educate yourself and educate others. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, uh, Simi and Jessica. You know, I believe we've, uh, uh, you know, been able to uh, deliver a lot of good information and, uh, you know, re really make a point on how serious this issue is. Uh, clemency is one thing and, you know, expungement is another. And then descheduling is certainly another. And we need the federal government to just 
you know, get real. So with all that said, again, this is Joseph Friedman with the CRX podcast. Uh, stay tuned. We've got some exciting podcasts coming up in the future. And uh, certainly, you know, reach out if you have any questions. Thank you all. To find all the episodes from the CRX podcast, go to crxpodcast.com. To learn more about the latest advancements in medical cannabis, visit crxmag.com. That's crxmag.com. Thanks for listening.